You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Today's teaching text comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, then 9 through 11. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Robbie. Good morning, church. How are we all doing today? I love this. I just get an applause for walking onto the stage. Okay. That's for my mom. I know she's watching at home and she can't see how, how big I'm getting, but good to see you this morning. Really happy to be sharing with you. My name is Gemma. If we don't know each other yet, I am the associate pastor and very soon to be heading off on maternity leave as we welcome our twins into this family. Um, and I am very aware that this could potentially be the last time that I'm teaching before the babies arrive. We don't know. We'll see. Um, but it's really, it's really good to um, be with you. I did contemplate at dressing up as Mary or something. I feel like this was my big opportunity <laughs> to do the nativity scene, right? Um, I did, if you were there on Wednesday night, I made a very uh, short and sweet appearance as Santa. Um, it was short and sweet because Santa is very tired at this time of year and I'm told he's put his hip out as well. So yeah, I only was there for a very short amount of time. But I have to say that it has been really sweet, you know, personally to be like anticipating the the arrival of a baby, actually two babies, but to be joining with the church around the world and celebrating Advent when we anticipate the arrival of Jesus. Um, Advent is the official beginning of the Christian year. It is observed by churches and denominations all around the world and culminates in the celebration of, of Christmas Day when we remember the birth of Jesus. But Advent is also so much more than Christmas. The word Advent, as you probably know by now, um, it means coming or arrival. And its focus is the birth of Jesus in what we consider his first Advent or first coming. But it's also a season where we anticipate the return of Christ in his second Advent or second coming. So it's a time when we look back, but it's also a time when we look forward. And, and during this particular season of Advent, we are focusing on the arrival of the Magi and exploring the gifts that they bring to the king. And as we continue to unpack this today, I want to really encourage us to try and come to this probably very familiar text with a posture of openness and expectancy. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, in our meditation, we ponder the chosen text on the strength of the promise that it has something utterly personal to say to us today and for our Christian life. 
And when it comes to this season, I know that I have often been tempted to kind of switch off, you know, and think I've been, you know, hearing or reading the birth narrative since I was a child. There can't really be anything new for me here. But I want to encourage us to approach this with fresh eyes and fresh ears and just ask ourselves, is there something here that I may have missed before? What does this text say that I need to know about God or myself or about his kingdom? And what is God's invitation to me in that? So let's come to God's word today, believing that it has something utterly personal to say to us. Can we do that? So scripture tells us that these wise, wealthy, learned Gentile men from the East, known as the Magi, came in search of the new king in order that they might worship him. And part of what that worship looked like was the presentation of very affluent, valuable gifts. Now, in our home uh, this month, we have a birthday and Christmas in the same month. It was Ember's 6th birthday last weekend, so there's always great excitement when it comes to gifts. In fact, the very morning after her birthday, she got into bed beside me and said, Mom, is there also something about celebrating half birthdays? And I was like, girl, chill out. You just had all of these gifts this, this whole weekend from people who love you. But I mean, who can argue that receiving gifts is a wonderful thing, especially when you're six. Um, but the giving and receiving of gifts at Christmas, no matter how simple or extravagant, is a beautiful expression of love and affection that stems from this act by the Magi. Have a think for me about the best gift you've ever received. I don't know what that was for you, why it was so good. Was it because it was something you really wanted or desired? Was it um, a surprise but just felt like it utterly fit? Um, I remember about nine Christmases ago, um, John and I were penniless and we decided that we wouldn't spend any money on Christmas gifts, but um, he wrapped up my favorite pair of his socks that I was always stealing. They officially became mine after that, and I wrapped up some library books that I'd very carefully chosen from Pasadena Public Library, and despite the fact that these gifts were free, they felt really meaningful because they just really were part of that season of our, our lives, and it just felt very thoughtful. But I'm sure we also all know what it's like to get a gift from someone that feels like it completely misses the mark or is even downright offensive. I don't know, like getting like a Weight Watchers cookbook or something. I don't know. I remember one time I returned a Vitamix that John had gotten for me, which is a very extravagant gift, but I was really upset because I thought he was getting me a puppy. Um, you know, and really, there's no comparison. Um, but the best gifts are those that make us feel like we're known in some way, whether that connects to our needs or our desires, our style, our personality. Um, if you've ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you'll know that there's this lovely scene um, when the children are on the run with the beavers, and they're in this cave. They're hiding out from the white witch, who has made it so that it's always winter in Narnia, never Christmas. And while they're in the little cave, they hear these sleigh bells outside, and they're worried that it's her. But to their delight, um, because her magic is lessening, uh, because of the arrival of Aslan, Father Christmas has been able to get into Narnia. And he then comes bearing symbolic gifts for the children. And to Peter, he gives a sword that he will one day soon have to use in battle. Um, to Susan, he gives um, a bow and a, and a horn that she can use to alert people in danger. To Lucy, he gives a small dagger for protection and some healing ointment that she will also need later in the battle. 
Now, the significance of these gifts relates to their prophetic symbolism. These gifts speak of a particular role or or call that these children will each grow into. And since the time of Irenaeus, the three gifts brought by the Magi have been considered to be symbolic. Gifts that represent something of who Jesus is and also prophetically symbolic of the kind of kingdom that he will usher in. Last week, Patrick talked about gold as being symbolic of Christ's kingship. And today we're going to talk about frankincense, probably not quite as familiar to us as gold. So let's start with what frankincense actually is. So frankincense comes from balsam trees, um, and basically a, a, a deep incision is made in the trunk of the tree, and this kind of resin comes out. And once the the gum flows out, it can then be ground into powder and burned to produce a kind of balsam-like aroma. I tried to burn some this morning so that you could have a sensory experience, at least, of what frankincense actually smells like. But if you want to know, I have a whole stack of um, incense sticks that are frankincense. If you want to take one home, let me know. Um, But at the time of Jesus' birth, these trees were native to southern Arabia and Somalia. So frankincense was a very costly item to be transported into Palestine by caravan. And at this time in history, frankincense was really a very expensive spice or perfume. For example, in 1 Kings 10, we read of the Queen of Sheba coming to visit King Solomon and bringing with her gifts to present to him as king. And we're told that she brought gold, large quantities of spices like frankincense, and also precious stones. Now, We don't know much about the Magi or their social status, but it goes without saying that like the Queen of Sheba, they brought gifts fit for a king to Jesus. Now, what is the significance or symbolic nature of bringing frankincense to Jesus? Well, if we look at the Old Testament, we see a whole host of occasions when frankincense is mentioned. It's sometimes used for perfume, as I said, or even medicine, but its most important use in scripture was related to worship. Frankincense was used alone or with other materials for incense. It was one of the ingredients of the holy incense used for worship in the tabernacle. In Exodus 30, for example, we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, take fragrant spices and pure frankincense all in equal amounts and make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. It is to be salted and pure and sacred. Grind some of it to powder and place it in front of the Ark of the Covenant Law in the tent of meeting, where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. In Leviticus, we read the frankincense was placed on the bread of presence. It was also mixed with oil in the cereal offerings. Frankincense is highly fragrant when burned. And 16 different times in the book of Leviticus, we read that it was burned as a pleasing aroma or a sweet-smelling sacrifice to the Lord. We read in the book of Nehemiah that a supply of frankincense was maintained in the temple in Jerusalem. So in Old Testament scripture, frankincense was associated with sacrifice, with worship, and with prayer. Because of this, the Magi's bringing of frankincense is believed to reflect Christ's deity or his divinity. In other words, the bringing of this gift was evidence of their recognition that this baby king was in fact divine. Laying down the gift of frankincense in front of the Christ child in worship was a symbolic act of honoring Jesus as God. 
In Isaiah 60, which speaks prophetically about the coming of Christ, it says this. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. So this gift was a proclamation of Christ's divine nature. The Magi have less to do with the coming of Christ as a human and more to do with the manifestation of Christ as God, the Messiah, the light of the world, coming to illuminate the darkness. One of the names that we often hear associated with Jesus at Christmas is Emmanuel, God with us, fully human and yet fully divine. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The God of all the universe humbled himself to become a helpless baby. He placed upon himself all of the restrictions and limitations of being human, and it is a beautiful thing for us to be able to feel a sense of kinship in the humanity of Jesus, of one who lived like us, who suffered like us. And yet this gift of frankincense invites us to also humble ourselves and bow down before the Christ, remembering afresh that he is God and worthy of all of our worship. Colossians 2.9 says, for in Christ, all of the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Jesus is our central definition of what God is like. We know God in Jesus alone. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus said himself, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. Jesus is literally God's heart in human form, and every image we have of God must conform to the person of Jesus. Michael Ramsey said, God is Christ-like, and in him there is no unchrist-likeness at all. Jesus is the word of God made flesh and blood. C.S. Lewis said, Jesus is what God has to say to us. Christianity is a person, not a collection of truths to be believed or laws to be obeyed. Christianity is Christ. In Christ, God is fully available to us. In Christ, everything that was lost in the fall is being restored. As Paul said, Christ gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice. In his incarnation, Jesus identified so profoundly with the human predicament in order that he might transform it. It qualified him to act for humanity, mediating between humanity and the divine. This gift of frankincense speaks of not only who Jesus is as God and worthy of our worship, but also the sacrifice he would make in order to bring about that redemption and restoration. And when we truly see Jesus as he is, in all of his divinity and in all of his glory, the only adequate response is worship. At one point in the Gospels, um, Jesus addresses the disciples and he says to them, you know, who do people say I am out there? And they say, oh, you know, some people say Elijah, some people say a prophet. And then Jesus gets really personal and says, and who do you say I am? Who who am I to you? 
And I really believe that during this season of Advent, as we find ourselves looking again at the familiar birth narrative, picturing the child in the manger, imagining the, 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 the magi bowing down low before him, presenting their gifts, we are confronted by the same question by Jesus. Who do you say I am? Who am I to you? And what is your response to that? Worship is our response to the initiative of God. Worship is about what captures our attention and our affection, a surrendering of our allegiance to the one who is above all. And we often think of worship as being the songs that we just sang or the liturgy that we recited together, but the form of our worship, the outward expressions of our worship are actually peripheral to the heart of our worship. For the Magi, worship was their intention when they set off on their long journey, and worship was also their immediate response when they found the one they were looking for. Worship is about bringing our whole selves, heart, mind, body, will, in humility before the creator and sustainer of life. It's about recognizing the bigness of God, the holiness, the glory, the beauty of God. The first of the Ten Commandments given was, have no other gods before me. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Jesus is God, the one we are to hold nothing and no one above, and we cannot make him anything less than that. Uh, years ago, there was a, a worship pastor in the UK, Matt Redman, who released a, a song. It might have even been an album, and it was called The Friendship and the Fear. I was always struck by that. Sometimes in dwelling on the humanity of Jesus, we can unintentionally create a reductionist view of who he is. We can be all about the friendship and the grace, which is all beautiful and wonderful, but fail to bow low in utter reverence and humility at his divinity. On the other hand, sometimes we can focus so much on the, the divinity of God, on his holiness, his otherness, and create a reductionist view of who he is. We can be all about the fear of God and miss the invitation to friendship. We're not supposed to pick and choose. We are invited to know Jesus in his divinity and in his humanity because he is fully both. In the incarnation, Jesus took on human nature without any loss to his divine nature. And at the heart of worship is a humble recognition of who he is. A.W. Tozer said this, worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder and overpowering love in the presence of that most ancient mystery which we call our Father which art in heaven. When I was at college, I started going along to a church that was very different from the one I had grown up in. And really, it was the first time that I truly encountered the Holy Spirit, where the risen Jesus was fully, truly alive and active for me. And there was such a thick and tangible sense of God's presence in that space that I think for the first time I experienced a sense of holy fear and reverence. So much so that I used to hide in the bathrooms during ministry time. Um, so they would have this like time of response as we often do here and I would desperately and urgently need to pee and find myself somewhere else other than in the main sanctuary. Um, 
And the truth was I was a little scared because I was encountering a God in this space that felt like leapt out of the box that I had put God in. And I suddenly thought like, how will this God show up in my life? What if this God disturbs my comfortable Christian life? But the truth was that I very gradually began to open up and step in, and I realized that all God was asking of me was friendship. It was the friendship and the fear. God wanted my heart, my whole self, and there was just this continual whispered invitation, Gemma, come and see, come and taste, come and know, know me in all of my fullness. This is what Jesus said in John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And as I began to experience more of the fullness of God in these kind of bigger gatherings, it fueled my desire to a life of private worship and devotion. And from that season on in my life, it felt like my life with God just changed from black and white to color. We were made to worship. All human beings are worshipers. We all give our hearts, our affection, our allegiance to something or someone. The real question is, to what or to whom? John Wimber said, show me where you spend your time, money, and energy, and I'll tell you what you worship. As human beings, our hearts are primarily oriented by desire, by what we love, and we will worship what we love. If you lift up the hood to each of our lives, you will find a whole swarm of competing desires. Some of them good, some of them not so good. And left unchecked, those desires can own us. But when God holds his rightful place as first in our lives, it reorders our desires. It brings alignment. Worship is about putting God in his proper place in our lives, First and foremost, the one who gets our attention and affection so that all of our other desires find their proper place in submission to him. Jesus said it like this, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. Jesus also said where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Our treasure is whatever we worship. Whatever takes up our time, our money, our energy, our resources. Jesus said this during his encounter with the rich young ruler, who had done all the right things, outwardly expressed worship in all of the right ways. But when Jesus looked at him, he saw where his treasure was. And in his case, it happened to be money. But I think that Jesus does the same thing with each of us. He locks eyes with us, he sees our hearts, and he calls out where our treasure is. I've had several encounters like that with Jesus. I have one that I remember in particular when it became really clear to me that the one on the throne of my life was me. (laughs) I was full of ambition and drive for a particular career path. And I could package it all up in Christianese and make it sound pretty good and holy and um, everything else. But Jesus could see my heart, could see where I was putting my trust, my security, who was in control. And the truth is that some of us would rather be God than entrust ourselves to God. 
we would rather keep ourselves at the center of the story. But the gift of frankincense reminds us that Jesus is the center and the circumference of the story. And like the Magi, we are invited to bow down and surrender and submission before him, acknowledging his lordship. And only in doing so will we discover the life of joy and abundance that we were always supposed to enjoy. I love that in that passage with the rich young ruler, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Friends, if you anticipate that kind of confrontation with Jesus, and there is an absence of love and tenderness in the eyes of Jesus, then I would encourage you to give some really serious thought to what your narrative of God actually is. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Who do you say I am? God looks at you and loves you this morning. He is for you, not against you. He is for your wholeness and your healing and your holiness. He simply knows that living water is found in him alone. And when we find ourselves digging these broken cisterns, trying to satiate our desires with polluted water, in love, he's going to let us know. When Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman at the well, he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This has been the message of God throughout the entire narrative arc of scripture. Stop digging your own wells, stop making yourselves God and come to me. Come all you who are thirsty Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend your money on what is not bread? And your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest affair. The water, the wine, the bread in these verses from Isaiah 55, this is a person, it's Jesus, the word made flesh, the only one worthy of our worship. So where our treasure is, our heart will be. And because of that, whatever we worship will grow in size and power and influence. We become like what we worship. In fact, Ralph Waldo Emerson puts it like this, I love this. It behooves us, not a word we usually say very much, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. The invitation to every believer is to become like Christ. And we will only become like Christ through a posture of worship, recognizing who he is afresh, humbling ourselves before him, and ensuring that he is back on the throne of our lives. Um, there's a Christmas carol called In the Bleak Midwinter. I don't know if you know that one. The final verse um, says this, what could I give him poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I have, I give him, give my heart. In response to God's gift of grace, we are called to worship in gratitude, not primarily in the giving of material gifts or offerings as the Magi did, but in the extravagant, wasteful giving of ourselves. 
Romans 12 says, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's gift to you, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is the gift that we bring to Jesus today in response to his gift of life to us. In many ways, you know, the burning of frankincense is pretty wasteful. It's this very expensive powder that just becomes a vapor, just dissipates into the air. And yet that is the invitation, that our lives of worship and surrender as living sacrifices would become a heavenly fragrance to the world. 2 Corinthians says, 2.14 says, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. In Luke, uh, we read the story of Jesus being anointed with perfume by a sinful woman. He's having dinner at a Pharisee's home. He's reclining at the table, and a woman of ill repute comes in with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume. And as she wept in gratitude, her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them with her hair. She kissed his feet and broke open this expensive jar and perfume and wasted it all on the feet of Jesus. And those watching were indignant. They were like, why this waste? But Jesus makes it clear to them, not only do you not see her as she truly is, you also don't see me as I truly am. Because if you really knew who I was, you would know how appropriate and fitting her gift actually is. This beautiful, extravagant, wasteful act of worship is because this woman knows exactly who I am and why I've come. And because she knows who I am, she now also has discovered who she is. And I imagine that the lingering aroma of her worship would have clung to the garments of these men long after that dinner party was over. Much like if you've been camping and you come home and all you can smell is the campfire from your clothes. The sacred heavenly fragrance of this woman's perfume for days would have been a reminder to those who witnessed this scene that they had settled for being mere observers and spectators in the lavish worship of this woman who was willing to give everything she had in thanksgiving for who Jesus was and what he had done for her. There's something so attractive, so beautiful and compelling about someone who lives completely abandoned to Christ, completely entrusted to him alone, wasting their life on him. Worship, it doesn't eliminate our troubles. It doesn't cause all of our temptations to disappear. But worship invites Jesus into the mess of our broken lives and invites his lordship and his reign in ever increasing measure. And I think one of the greatest hurdles to this kind of life of abandonment is comfort, like I mentioned earlier. Sometimes we're just too comfortable. It's actually really easy to come into church and engage in all the outward expressions of worship without really allowing it to penetrate the deepest parts of us to where our desires live. We can really easily come in and consume without it costing us anything in terms of our own personal comfort. And, you know, as your pastors, we want this place to feel safe and good, but if it feels comfortable, I think we're getting something wrong. In Song of Solomon, the beloved, who's a reference to Jesus, is knocking on the chamber door, and the maiden resists getting up to answer. It says, I've taken off my robe, must I put it on again? I've washed my feet, must I soil them again? 
And in that moment, her comfort is more important than an encounter with the beloved. What might it look like for us to step into discomfort for the sake of encountering the divinity of Jesus? The promise that gives us courage is that when we find the pearl of great price, when we truly encounter the friendship and the fear, the humanity and the divinity of Jesus, we will willingly sell everything to have it. When we've tasted that the Lord is good, we will settle for nothing less. Paul wrote in Philippians 3 that he considered every gain in his life to be garbage compared to the matchless worth of knowing Jesus. Today we lit a candle for joy. And the invitation to worship is always to joy. God's gift leads us to joy. Abiding in worship is how we abide in the joy of God. Jesus said, if you remain in my love, which is really what true worship actually is, your joy will be complete. So this morning, as we meditate on this gift of frankincense, it invites us to ponder afresh who Jesus is and to contemplate what our response to that revelation is. It compels us to see him in all of his glorious divinity. And yet in the season of Advent, we recognize that we are people of the in-between. In between the first advent when Jesus came as a baby and his second advent when he will come again to fully and finally establish his kingdom on the earth. And because of that, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, right now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then we shall see face to face. Now we see only in part, but then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. Advent is a season of waiting, and this waiting reminds us of all of the redemption that we personally and the world at large still lack and are desperately in need of. But in this time of waiting, we are invited to make a choice about who Jesus is for us in the here and now, and what our lives will look like in response. Like these wise men, we are invited to bow down humbly before him, offering him ourselves, inviting him to take his proper place as Lord of all. So that like the gift of frankincense, our lives become a pleasing aroma to God, spreading the fragrance of Christ in a broken world until he comes again. You see, these Gentile magi also serve as a foretaste of that future day. When that second advent comes and every knee will bow and every tribe and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And on that day, All of our apathy and indecision will be swallowed up in wonder, love, and praise when we see Jesus fully as he is. And our only response will be to cast our crowns before him in worship for all eternity. But we are also invited to begin now, knowing that the worship and prayers of the saints rise like sweet-smelling incense to the throne of Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Like frankincense did in the Old Testament, now the worship of our hearts rises to God like a sweet-swelling aroma. So who do you say I am today? Where is your treasure? Who is receiving your attention and affection? I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up. And I'm gonna invite all of us to stand, actually.
I, I don't know about you, but I, I desperately want to encounter Jesus in all of his divinity and in all of his humanity. I want to know him as he is. And for the outflow of that, the outpouring of that, to be a heart of worship towards him. Worship that transforms me. Worship that changes me. And I want to invite you now just to close your eyes. You might even want to just hold out your hands in a posture of receiving. But we're just going to move into a time of, of, of worship, and ministry, and response. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we recognize that none of the trappings of worship really mean anything without a personal, transformative encounter with you, Jesus. So we just invite your presence, Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and rest on each of us, those watching as well. Jesus, we want to encounter you today. We want to encounter you afresh. Would you make yourself known to us, Lord? Would you reveal your glory and your beauty and your majesty to us? Would you help us to see you afresh that we might be moved to humility and worship at an extravagant, wasteful offering of ourselves before you? And Lord, we just take a moment to confess as all of us fall short of this, all of us need to be brought into realignment. Earlier, Miriam prayed for alignment in our physical bodies. And right now, I just want to pray for alignment in our spirits. Jesus, would you come and take up your rightful place? Would you come and occupy the center? Would you bring order and alignment to the desires within us? And Lord, we just confess that we have put ourselves in the center. Lord, we confess that sometimes we'd rather be God than entrust ourselves to you. Lord, would you forgive us? Forgive us when we failed to put you in the throne of our lives. God, I want to thank you that the invitation is always to joy. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill this room with a sense of anticipation, anticipation of the joy that we know in Christ. Fill us with that joy in our hearts today, Lord. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come up. If you're on the prayer team or if you're one of our ministry leaders, please come and just be available to people at the front. The prayer rugs are here also, and you can use those rugs as a place of confession, as a place of surrender, 
and our prayer team are here. If you just feel like you want someone to stand with you and pray, pray that Jesus would take up the center again. But I just want to invite you, don't leave this space today without doing business with God. If God's been speaking to you, I'm pretty sure you'll know it. It's usually more that we just need a little step of courage to respond. So however God is inviting you to respond today, I want to just pray that you have the courage to respond to him. So let's worship. Let's come and receive prayer. If you want to receive prayer just from someone you know in the body, please do that as well. But let's just be praying for one another for that alignment, for that proper alignment to reorder our desires around the divinity of Jesus. So let's worship together.